My name is Bronwyn Sire, and you're listening to The Drop. The Drop is an investigative, mindful, and creative dive into the future. Each episode will ask a question or investigate an issue around equality, sustainability, or a better future. Hi, guys. So today we're talking about the Global Fashion Conference. The Global Fashion Conference happens every couple of years. It is kind of a bridge from industry and academia. And um, it's really cool because it goes, it's quite international. It's hosted at a different college um, every two years. And this year it was hosted at London College of Fashion. I think it's also worth disclosing, since we're talking a lot about the London College of Fashion and the Centre for Sustainable Fashion, that the four of us are all coming to the end of a master's course at LCF and it is also run under CSF, a lot of acronyms, um, and that's how we met. So it's a little love story. <laughs> yeah, so it's hosted at London College of Fashion, um, which is also the home of an amazing research hub called the Centre for Sustainable Fashion, which was the host this year. And they're a little more kind of to give you a bit more context about what they do. So their sort of like artistic statement is uh, the Centre for Sustainable Fashion was devised to question and challenge reactionary fashion cultures which reflect and reinforce patterns of excessive consumption and disconnection to expand fashion's ability to connect, delight and identify individual and collective values. And they had a really lovely book they published celebrate 10 years of the centre at this conference and in it it has a really amazing declaration. I'm just going to read a few lines from it that really I just thought were great. Um, We recognise our ecological context. We respect the rights of all living things to live well. We engage in design as a means to improve existing situations. We speak truth to power. So I think what's really great about the centre, which also resonated through the conference, is their values. And so the conference had kind of four key themes or elements, which were nature, culture, power and society. And even though they seem like fundamental to the fashion industry and things that should be talked about all the time, they're not. And so it was really refreshing to have a conference on fashion that was centred around those kind of ideas. Yeah, so for us, we organized some workshops for students during the conference. We were able to stream a few of the discussions at the conference and then work with the students to kind of talk about what was said and kind of help make the conference accessible to them. They're just starting off on their course in fashion. And obviously, once you get into industry, it's really hard to have that freedom of thought where you're able to make sure that your values kind of stand out the most. So for them to be able to kind of explore that just at the beginning of their education is really, really important. Yeah, I completely agree. I think because that's the kind of time when you're sort of exploring still like what your values are. And we decided to um, to stream the Catherine Hammett discussion as part of that workshop, especially because we know just how political she is and just how like driven she just completely has these like guiding principles that totally inform all of her decision making. And she's really staunch about it. And she's really funny, just with like, it's not, it doesn't come off like holier than thou or like on her high horse. She's just just, honest. Just really honest and just like living, she's just decided that this is how she wants to live and she's just doing it. Yeah, and I love that she calls people out and stuff. So one of the things that she said was she called out global conferences on the bullshit, the fact that people travel from all over the world. Um, releasing so many emissions to come to this conference to talk about sustainability and there does seem to be this disjointed thinking within I mean not just the fashion industry but so many industries around conversations around sustainability. Yeah it's not to say that nobody should go to any conferences or fly anywhere ever and just stay in your house I don't think but I think it's about having that balance is the trade-off that you're going to yes use these carbon emissions to fly across the country for this conference but they gain enough insights so you can actually implement change and then 
there's like positive things happening. Mm. Well, I think that's the whole thing about sustainability is that there has to be some sort of balance. And you, while you're being critical of others, you also have, kind of have to be critical of yourself. So speaking of calling people out, uh, she also called out Versace for winning the Green Carpet Fashion Award this year, which really is ironic in a lot of ways, you know, if even if you just look at their website, there's no sustainability initiative. You don't really hear anything about Versace doing much other than maybe banning fur. Yeah, and actually, to be honest, on the Green Carpet Challenge website, it doesn't say too much about the reasons. It just says for a kind of a, a rollout of their sustainability initiatives. What does that mean? What is it? Well, and with, I mean, obviously within luxury, it is a complicated discussion and there's a lot of different factors here, but it is just, it's definitely refreshing for somebody at a conference who has the stage to kind of call out industry with no boundaries, no barriers. Obviously, we should be giving awards to people like trying stuff. But then if they're just like rolling out this initiative, it's like everyone should be doing that. You should be highlighting the people that are really having like doing amazing things to hold them up and be like, wow, that's what we should be aspiring to. I don't think you should just get an award for like trying to roll out more sustainable stuff. Mm. It just yeah, what given. is it? And for an industry that's like sustainability... Ha- well, it has to happen. It's all about... Yeah, <laughs> it has to happen. And sustainability, <laughs> one of like the key things that people talk about is transparency. Where Where is the transparency in that? Yeah, it's so true. And I think, you know, there's a point there. It's not fair to say that anytime a company says we're doing this one little sustainable thing, we should be extra critical because it's discouraging for brands then to enter that sustainability Definitely. space. Mm-hmm. But you know what? At the end of the day, it is also about kind of calling the bullshit. Catherine was so uncensored. I thought it was great. Speaking of how, like, principled she was, even though she was saying, like, you have to do all these, like, activist things and be quite radical, she also, in hindsight, did look back at when she first started doing all these things, like, 30 years ago. And it was interesting to hear her say how she basically was so principled about it that she just cut everything, and then that made, made her have to, like, start from scratch, which was really hard, obviously. And she says that looking back now... She should have basically phased one bad way out and then phased in one right way. And I just thought it was quite interesting for even for someone quite radical, she was still like actually kind of need to work with some of the systems we have. Mm. We've well, got these like networks in place already, so let's use them, harness them, as opposed to completely going kind of off the grid, starting again in 20 years' time. I think arguably you could say that Catherine is doing it the right way, like she is being really principled about it. I would say that most businesses are looking at doing it the other way. They're looking at slow incremental change, right? And she's encouraging that. She's just saying I didn't do it that way. So it is, and it's honest. It's more honesty. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of the things that she does advocate for are disruptive. They're not incremental. They're not about the slow and steady change. They're like, let's change. Let's change now. Everyone has the ability to do something. So not to give too many spoiler alerts of the talk, but I think the big takeaway from Catherine was to get really political. And for her, that means basically writing to your MPs. It doesn't have to be MPs. It's not just in the UK. American sidebar, MP refers to a member of parliament, which would be the equivalent of any elected representative. But ultimately, just to make your voice heard, and she's really, really infamous for doing that with fashion slogans. But I think she's also saying, you know, in the real world, it's just about getting out there and making your voice heard. And I think that is really, really important. And actually in the workshops that we did during the conference, we were making postcards with the students that we worked with. So it was really great for them to be able to hear this from someone who's so iconic at being a political voice and then for them to be able to feel empowered that they can do it as well. And now for the main event. Here's Catherine Hamnett talking to Dana Thomas about life as a revolutionary and how to change the world. Good morning. Can you hear me okay? Great. 
So I'm going to give you a little introduction on Catherine, though. She doesn't really need one because we all know who she is. Catherine came of age in fashion during a turbulent time when Thatcherism was clashing with the punk movement and Britain's youth was really letting its rage and frustration be known to the establishment loudly. And she took that message of you know, activism worldwide with her statement t-shirts, which declared you know, in very bold statements in big letters, things like choose life, uh, which George Michael wore in Wham's Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. And most famously, 58% uh, do not want Pershing, a reference to a nuclear missile placement. Hammett herself uh, wore this, gamely sported this, when she went to meet Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher at a Fashion Week reception on 10 Downing Street in 1984. She kindly recalled this in The Guardian in the last few days. She said, none of us wanted to go to that reception. All the designers who were invited hated her, hated Thatcher for everything she'd done to the UK. I remember Jasper Conran saying, why should I go share a glass of wine, white wine with that murderess? I loved him for that. But I realized it was an incredible op photo opportunity, whatever I thought of her. I hid it under my jacket, and when they asked me to take my coat at the door, I said, no, thank you. The moment I shook Thatcher's hand, I opened my jacket so the writing would be completely legible to the photographers in the room who went crazy with their flashbulbs. She looked down and said, you seem to be wearing a rather strong message on your t-shirt. Then she bent down and read it and let out a squawk like a chicken. Hammond, as I think you'll agree, rightly earned the moniker, the bad girl with integrity. The other important side of Hamnet's work the one you heard less about back then, was her sustainability stance. And quite frankly, that's because sustainability wasn't really a trendy topic. Did the world sustain, word sustainability even exist in the fashion vocabulary then? I was covering the industry for the Washington Post at the time, and I can tell you, no, not really. We wrote about Boy George's The Ribbon Dreadlocks, Andre Agassi not going to Wimbledon because he didn't want to wear white, Nancy Reagan's shoulder pads, Princess Diana's Elvis look, but organic cotton and dye waste issues? Yeah, no. So Catherine Hammett was way ahead of the curve, and she's still beating her drum, trying, trying to get us to do better. Thank you for being here today with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. Hi, everybody. Uh, first tell me, how did you get started on the path of being ecologically minded? Was it part of your upbringing or was, this, or was there an epiphany of some sort? I suppose I was always brought up to, you know, to tell the truth, not to lie, cheat, steal, you know, be a champion of justice and fairness. You know, I mean, this is just the way I think we were brought up in those days. Um, but I got really interested in the late 70s when my sister, brains of the family, got really interested in Buddhism. And they talk about you know, it's like the path to happiness, if you like. There's the eightfold path, and one of the things you've got to do is right livelihood, as long along with you know right thinking, right acting. Um, it's earning your living without for the good, really, of all mankind, and without hurting any living thing. I mean, I love ideas which tick all the boxes. You know, it's very easy to be successful if you're ruthless and you have no principles. I think I think the challenge is to earn your living being a decent human being. 
Um, and so I kind of set out to do that, looked at right livelihood, thought we can't really be doing anything wrong because we're just making silly frocks. Um, in 1989, we were on a roll. We were selling 700 of the best shops in the world. We were doing fashion shows everywhere. It was fun, but it was, success was almost too easy to the point of being boring. And I thought, we'll just do a check to see we're not doing any harm, that we're in line with right livelihood code. And of course, the results of this research that we commissioned came back. And far from being benign, I found myself up to my neck in a living nightmare. I mean, in those days, they're saying about 10,000 people a year were dying from accidental pesticide poisoning in cotton agriculture, the desertification, long-term contamination of the water supply, rivers and seas with pesticides, herbicides, desertification, microbiological death, obviously animal, animal health issues, human health issues, and millions of people making garments, working and considering in conditions worse than slavery. So this was, you know, what happened to me, well, 30 years ago next year. Um, and I've been trying to change the industry from within ever since, because I felt that we can't carry on like this. We have to change. And I was surprised because I thought everybody would feel the same way as I did, but they actually didn't. I had a real struggle. You could, even within my own company, convincing people that we had to change the way that we made clothes. We had to look at the raw materials differently and the processes and um, sort of head-on crash really with the industry where I think I became practically number one persona non grata overnight. How did you change? What did you change in the process and in the materials? Well, to start off with, you couldn't really get organic cotton. And we had a really successful jeans line. So I persuaded the owner of the company who was making the jeans to put 10% of the profit towards helping farmers convert to organic via Pesticide Action Network UK, who is still one of the kind of staunchest NGOs concerned with you know, agricultural issues across everything, herbicides and pesticides. Um, and he was happy the first season to give the 10% reasonably happy the second season uh, but the third season it was too much and the, we got the farmers in Ethiopia desperate for the money from this because it was support sustaining um, agri you know sorry organic cotton projects and so I ended up going down there with a channel 4 TV crew uh, hidden in the back of a limo and kind of busted him with TV cameras to get the check off him but that was pretty symptomatic of my career. It was like falling out either quietly or noisily with pretty well everybody I was working with. I mean, my advice to anybody who wants to, who's actually in manufacturing and wants to become sustainable is don't do what I did because I just cut it. I uh, thought so I'm not prepared to earn my living at the price of any you know, human suffering or environmental destruction. So instead of doing the clever thing of phasing one in and phasing you know, the other out. I cut everything, and it's been, you know, hard to put it back together starting from zero, whereas I could have taken advantage of the distribution that we had, you know, the sales teams, the shops were available, and bought it in that way. So, you know, it's highly principled what I did, but also commercially idiotic. <laughs> what are some of the other materials that you source today? Do you use, like, your wools and cashmere? Are they all sustainable materials that you source? and you know your supply chain and it's transparent as possible? We do use organic wool, but cashmere, I'm really worried about because I think you've got an increase in the cashmere flocks in 
Outer Mongolia about 10 times what it used to be 10 years ago. And they're just going to eat the place to desert. You know, it's an overgrazing issue, no matter how beautifully it's processed and how we look at our water and energy issues. You've actually got a, a big problem with the production of cashmere full stop. So we're using recycled cashmere. But on other materials, um, we're using obviously organic cotton. We found finally found organic linen, which was so slow to get onto the marketplace. It was unbelievable. It was harassing masters of linen, who the linen marketing board, for years. And they were just coming up with nothing. Finally, we've got one. I mean, linen hardly takes any pesticide at all, so it was completely screwy. Um, the big issue for me was polyester, recycled polyester, because after all the information we had on microparticles, I thought, great, we'd use recycled polyester. When I first found, well, before the microparticles, I was really excited because I had found this great recycled polyester, which was a super sophisticated looking fabric. And then I thought with the microparticle thing, we could be using recycled polyester, but we're just postponing the problem. And then I saw the thing in F the FT Weekend, uh, came out last Saturday. Google it, there's the most phenomenal article on the plastic crisis globally. China has cut their intake of plastic down to 10% of what it was previously because they were recycling it. Now they realize that has a huge environmental impact, so they're not taking it. And it's stockpiling in Thailand, Malaysia, and I think we've just got to go hell for leather into 100% recycled plastic, well, polyester or 100% recycled PET product that can be recycled at the end of its life because we can play a huge role in clearing up this rubbish mountain, but we have to move on it now because it's totally out of control. So I've kind of reversed my position on using recycled polyester, which I thought, you know, we're going to be putting it back into the supply chain. I think the one thing you've got to avoid with polyester is fleece because that apparently is where the microparticles are going through the washing machines into the ocean. Now, one of your most famous t-shirts was Choose Life. Can you explain, because it feels like Choose Life is part of all of this, this whole point of view on, on sustainability. Can you explain the... Well, Choose Life was actually the first t-shirt we ever did. And it came um, from an argument I had with Lynn Franks of Fab fame, who was putting on this Buddhist exhibition. And I said, look, nobody's going to take any notice of this. What If you want to get the message over, you've got to put the central philosophy in giant letters on a T-shirt that people can read from 200 yards, and then you'll get it into their heads. And she said, no, no, no. And I said, yes, 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 so I did it. But I love Buddhism, and I think it's, it's very similar to Christianity. It's just a little bit more practical. It's got things like anger is hell, and the best thing to do with resentment is to forget it. You know, I mean, it's a bit sort of more elaborate. It's a bit more sophisticated. You know, I've been always very interested in that and as a kind of way of life that you should aspire to if you want to be happy, which is what we all want to be. Absolutely. Now, you said at one point you felt like a lonely voice when you were out saying we need to change it up, we need to think about the planet, we need to be more ecological in fashion. Do you feel like you're still a lonely voice today? Well, it was a lonely voice then. I mean, I remember going sort of 19... 90, um, probably going to Interstop, one of the huge fabric fairs, and going to see one of the suppliers that I was normally buying hundreds of thousands of meters of for the denim, and saying, um, have you got any organic cotton? And instead of being all over me, and oh, madame, would you like a glass of caviar? Um, he virtually barred the way to his stand, folded his arms, and say, why should we do organic cotton? 
when you're the only one asking for it. Then I did a collection with a hugely um, reputable uh, manufacturing company in Italy called Gibo, who were making for all the best lines. And I, you know, again, I was doing to do trying to do a sustainably produced well, the sustainable materials in the collection. And I thought I'd been really successful. And then at the day before we went out to the agents to show the collection, I found they'd substituted half the sustainable materials for non-sustainable equivalents. And I protested about this. And the guy who owned the place, Franco Penne, said to me, if you carry on with this ethical and environmental shit, you can take your collection and fuck off. So it was a pretty lonely place. You know, I was not only lonely, but virtually being spat at to answer your question. So, but are you, are you feeling that way still today? No, well, no, um, I'm not. It's still a hell of a struggle. Um, what encourages me is that the huge change that we're seeing is being completely consumer-driven. Um, and that is, I mean, I've always, in my work, I've always related to the consumer. I didn't give a damn about the industry, really. I always thought, you know, it's the people who wear your clothes. So you've got to do something that makes them happy. You know, that's why one of the things I, you know, that's sort of the aim of designing clothes. You put them on, they make you feel amazing. And so my amazing friends have been driving this and industry has been dragged kind of kicking and streaming and by the hair into, you know, trying to make some ostensible efforts for sustainability. But it's, you know, there's so much bullshit. It's just unbearable. There's a sustainability industry that's invented itself. There's all sorts of sustainable certifications which are completely meaningless. I mean, how the hell did Versace get an award for sustainability? I mean, it just beggars belief. The lies that are told and the ignorance of the industry. Oh, we're abandoning animal fur. We're going to use marvelous fake fur, which is completely sustainable. Well, it's made of viscose, acetate, nylon. I mean, and all viscoses, apart from lensing process, are hideously destructive to the environment because they use the most appalling chemicals which vent off into the atmosphere, but also go into the groundwater, into the rivers. So, you know, they're sort of smoothing over to and they're sort of wonderful sustainability conferences all over the world where people spend huge amounts of CO2 in airline uh, fuel and you know, buying overpriced glasses of champagne say, oh, we've got to make things better. I mean, it's driven me insane. I actually spoke at one, the big one in Rio, and I was so disgusted. I just was ashamed of my carbon dioxide emissions for even getting there because it's like a conspiracy to do nothing. I think we need to be much tougher because, as you've seen from the UN climate change report, we've got 12 years left. Well, you know, we worked out if we'd gone from, like, no organic cotton to 1% of organic cotton in about 30 years, it takes about 1,200 years before we get 100% organic cotton. And that's going to be too late because we're all going to be dead. And our descendants are going to be dead, unfortunately. We need radical change now. And I think the only way we're going to get that is with legislation because Chinese government with, um, officials you know, mentioned how they were being pressured by big brands not to do something about their human rights abuses because the brands were saying, well, this is going to dent their profit. So industry doesn't give a shit. I think if you take that position, because being sustainable um, is more expensive and they're going to make less profit. You kept at this and you kept at this, you didn't back down. 
I can't imagine you ever backing down. And so I wondered, what were some of your victories? You talked about some of the sort of th hard times you had. What have been some of your victories? I can't think of any victories, really. I suppose it'd be a victory to be surviving and to still be here and to actually have my own line, which is being made sustainably in Europe, you know, under EU employment law. But, you know, it's not what I really dreamt of. And it's great to have a voice, which I suppose I kidnapped with the excess media coverage we're getting in the 80s, the fact that I can put out slogan t-shirts and people take any notice of them. This conference is called What's Going On? So. Uh, what's Not Enough. <laughs> really not enough. Managing people are managing to hide behind the bushes. I mean, my, I've got a very simple trick, which is thought everything, um, but it involves legislation. But if we want to, you know, in life we've got to feed ourselves, clothe ourselves, shelter ourselves. So clothes are never going to go away. Clothes are better produced locally because they travel less distance, they create local jobs, uh, local infrastructure, you know, revenue for the exchequer um, is less polluting. What we need is a law, the only, go good, the only goods that are allowed into our e economic blocks, whether it's UK or hopefully, you know, UK in the, still in the EU or the United States, for instance, are made to the same standards outside as inside, and by that standards, I mean environmental standards, labor, health and safety. So people are paid a living wage, it costs more. They've got to deal with all their effluents and wastewaters and you know, their environmental impact, that costs more. They've got to, to give people health and safety time off, that costs more. So it actually narrows the gap between made in the EU, for instance, and made in Sri Lanka. It makes manufacturing in our economic blocks stimulates it, it gives it a better chance of surviving, it makes it more competitive, and we have to do this because it also helps the people outside because it stops brands from bunny hopping from country to country as the human rights are improved. So tell me about how you perceive the relationship between fashion and nature. I know Dillis talks about um, nature being at the center of everything and that we have to build around it versus business being at the center of everything and we have to build around the business. How do you... Well, we're nature dependent. I mean, if we're to survive as a species, we need species. We need to have a symbiotic relationship with nature. You know, we need to take, but we need to give back an equal balance. In fact, we need to even probably give back more than we're taking. And the way that we're going about it right now is we're actually killing nature off. You know, and it'll be the species and ultimately ourselves. So we really need to rethink everything that we're doing. You know, I mean, natural fibers are incredible because they actually pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And the fiber is made of carbon, so they keep it on the ground. So we should be going hell for leather for, well, pardon the sort of malapropism there, but we should be going crazy for using doing everything that we can with sustainably produced natural fibers because that helps climate for a start and then we should be looking you know at our water issues we should look at you know, water contamination problems um, we should be banning a whole heap of processes you know sally fox of course i went to see sally fox in northern california she's a real pioneer she's been in from she's day one fantastic she's the one who brought colored cotton to the forefront and has been sort of the godmother of the organic cotton movement in the last 40 years. She well, she's been one of them. I mean, there are quite a few other people. There's people like Simon Ferrigno, Keith Tyrrell, who are also massive players. I mean, I love Sally, but the problem with 
the natural colored cotton. It's not actually a terribly nice color. I mean, the, one of the things I think the real stumbling blocks with sustainably produced clothing is it goes a bit eco look and nobody want to look brown and lumpy. You know, you want to be wearing the hottest, sexiest, most sophisticated outfit on earth, better than everybody else's, but also that's made sustainably. I think the colored cotton thing, for me, is a bit of a wrong direction. I mean, I love Sally, and I, you know, she'd kill me for saying this, but um, I think that the organic cotton agriculture is, you know, super important, but it's much easier because we're not going to be wearing white all day long. Um, to be able to get purer colors from, you know, natural white cotton rather than the brown one. I mean, digressing, Sally will kill me in the afterlife, I know. Well, what she's doing now to pay her bills and keep her co colored cotton breeding going is she's sequestering carbon by planting her fields with crops that take carbon. And All crops do, though. She's, you know, I mean, photosynthesis but she's found some very, um, She's figured out a very micro version of how to make this all work, and she's growing her cotton on the land. Well, it's wonderful because it's a very labor-intensive thing, and if she can actually make it work in America, where wages are high, you know, it's, I'm sure it's a model that can be replicated in other places. And it's what you were saying, that doing things locally, but also doing things in a small way, as opposed to trying to conquer the world. Well, I think you've got to do things in a big way. I don't think we've got any time to do it in a small way now. Um, otherwise, we're just going to run out of planet. I think we've got to do things in a big way fast. I think then the only way that we're actually going to achieve it is by putting pressure on elected representatives. I mean, you can write to brands that you're blue in the face, but unless we have legislation that forces the brands to behave better and more respectfully to you know, the environment and to the people that work in the supply chain, right. um, nothing's going to change. Now, what do you think about the idea in, in the world of circularity and in reuse of renting rather than buying clothes? Today I'm wearing a suit by Sel McCartney that I rented for the week. You're the first person I've ever seen that's worn rented clothes. Well, actually, basically, I hate the idea. You hate the idea? Yeah. Yeah, I really hate it. <laughs> I think you should, you know, I mean, I'm a great vintage shopper and... You know, I think, and occasionally I'll buy something designer. I tend to design for myself, so I guess I get free clothes, which is cheating. But I wouldn't want to rent anything. Um, I don't know why, just probably my sort of idiosyncratic madness. But it's something that just doesn't appeal to me in the slightest. Interesting. But is it a huge business? It's becoming a huge business. And it's becoming Have a huge business. Have you done business it before? In particular, no. The, this, was a, this is so, a trial run. So, yeah, the rent a virgin, right? Exactly. The, yeah, um, it looks very nice on you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Apparently, it's very popular for things that you would wear only once or twice, like the Stripper mother of the bride outfits. dress, the, yeah. the, the prom dress, a red carpet moment where you might not be able to afford the $4,000 gown, but you could rent it for 400 and look spectacular and then return it and not have it sitting in your closet, never to be worn again. Okay, you're persuading me. <laughs> and then for women who are real fashionistas but can't afford to, to buy a red coat and wear it for one season and then chuck it, but they, but they really like to do that. So they just rent it for the season. Or they rent it for a month. Better than those people that get stuff for online stores, get photographed in it and send exactly. it back. Exactly, and then there's the Slightly more honest version. What do they call the Cinderella? The Cinderella syndrome. Yeah. But it does create less clothes going in the bin. 
you think people are going to throw away a lot of 4,000 foot dresses, right? When they're easy, when they're ready to wear. Mm. I don't know you could hang on to them, keep them in your wardrobe, bring them up 30 years later. I don't know. It's an area I haven't actually given enough thought I'm, to, apparently. I'm, I'm intrigued by the, this move. Um, but circularity in general of things going back, not just into the ground, but also back into the system, that there is no end of life. I think that's what we have to do with recycled polyester. I think we, you know, I think there should be huge projects given to all the students to work a project of design products which are 100% recycled polyester, which can be upcycled, because I think that is a huge urgency right now. If you put a metal zip on a polyester garment, or recycle polyester garment, and let you take that zip off, it's difficult to recycle, so you actually want them made. Every component needs to be recycled polyester, but they're available, it's available, but I think this is you know, the emergency. So where do we go from here in our 12 years that we have left? Well, I think it's, you know, it's this thing of, you know, slogans are fine, but they don't achieve anything. And, you know, unless they're followed up by political action, I think it's about political action. I think it's about contract, contacting your MPs and saying, you know, we need new laws to control the clothing industry. We know it's the most polluting industry on the planet, one of the most polluting industries on the planet. And we have to have legislation to control it because it's not controlling itself. And it's going to take our lives away, you know, with it, unless we don't do something now. Dramatic. <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn said, the only thing that changes politicians' behavior is something that threatens their ability to get elected. And I think, you know, it's true. So if you threaten this, you say, look, I'm horrified at what the clothing industry is doing. Unless you do something about it, I'm not voting for you at the next election. You'd also include a couple of things like cancelling Brexit. Um, but if you make that point, and I'm not going to vote for your next election, they're really going to sit up and listen because they're nothing. You know, once, you know, they make the some of them make the mistake thinking they've elected to take decisions on our behalf, but they're, we actually elect them and pay for them to represent our views. So we have to force them to do that, to call them to account. And it's the only way that we're going to get change in any of the areas that we're concerned with, you know, whether it's, you know, legislation on, you know, non-polluting, only long-polluting clothes being allowed into our environments, you know, or whether it's stopping selling, same, selling arms to Saudi Arabia. The only thing that's going to change this is us actually pulling our politicians to account. Uh, our time is up, but I want to thank you so much for coming and spending all this, this morning with us. It's been fantastic. Well, thank you very much, and lovely to see such a full audience. And, and keep, thank keep you for having me. Keep thank the fight you. up. You keep the fight up, too, and everybody else. Yeah, together we can win. I think this is what we've got to think. It's like stop acting in solitary islands now and get together, um, and then we can achieve anything.
That was Heidi Vogel doing a cover of Marvin Gaye's relevantly titled, What's Going On? We'd like to thank Catherine Hamnett and Damon Thomas for their words of inspiration, and to the Center for Sustainable Fashion for sharing the discussions that made this episode. Our theme music is produced by Troy Hewson. 